living and working in the mountains, it's never about us or our agenda or what we want or what the clients want or what the ski resort management wants. It's, it's what you're presented with. This is Lel Tone, and you're listening to the Avalanche Hour Podcast. You are tuned in to another episode of the Avalanche Hour Podcast, your source for great conversations within the snow and avalanche community. I'm your host, Caleb Merrill. The Avalanche Hour Podcast is proudly presented by VEASAN Avalanche Control, safety through innovation. Additional support is provided by 10 Barrel Brewing, Drink Beer Outside, and Interwest Insurance. The goal of this podcast is to create a stronger community through the sharing of stories, knowledge, and news amongst people with a curious fascination of avalanches. Welcome back to the show, everybody. Hope you're doing well today. We've got a great interview teed up for you with Lel Tone. But first, I wanted to talk a little bit about raising some money for the American Avalanche Association. They're busy this fall with their fall fundraising drive. An anonymous donor has agreed to match every dollar raised by A3 up to $10,000 between now and the end of the year. That means that every dollar you donate to A3 will be matched dollar for dollar and have double the impact. Whether you're currently an A3 member or you believe in their mission to support avalanche professionals across the U.S., I hope you'll consider making a donation to A3 today. You can make donations or sign up for membership at www.americanavalancheassociation.org. Our friends over at East Coast Avalanche Education have reached out to us. They're trying to spread the word for uh, the first Pro One that's happening on the East Coast. It looks like it's February 14th through 18th, put on by the fine folks at the American Avalanche Institute. Um, And they're trying to fill that up so that they can make it happen. So if you're on the East Coast looking for a Pro One, contact East Coast Avalanche Education. You can find them on Instagram and DM them. If you have news around the community that you want to air on the show, DM us. We'll get it out there. One thing's for certain these days, there's no shortage of information. We are living in the information age. But when you're planning a backcountry tour... It's pretty important that you have the right information before you head out the door. And that's where Beacon Guidebooks comes in. Here's a message from our friends at Beacon Guidebooks. After all the education an avalanche student receives, the big question remains, where should I go? Long gone are the days of barroom napkins and Facebook advice. It's our mission here at Beacon Guidebooks to create decision-making tools for backcountry skiers to present terrain information in a professional, responsible, and ultimately reliable way. Our maps, atlases, and app give every skier the tools to be successful, safe, and smart. Check out and purchase Beacon Guidebooks at www.beaconguidebooks.com or your favorite local gear shop. And without further ado, here we go, dropping in with Lel Tone. Good morning, Lel. How's it going? Good morning, Caleb. It's good to see you. Yeah, great to see you. Thanks for inviting me into your home, beautiful Tahoe City. 
You got the first snowfall at lake level for the season. It's very fitting. Yes, it is. And I just want to say how nice it is to be able to actually connect in person with friends again and to be able to give hugs and have that human contact. So it's, yeah. it's not only do we have a gift of snow, but we have a gift of brotherhood. Right. And being able to see each other face to face. It's cool. Yeah. Awesome to see you. I was hoping you could introduce yourself to our listeners, talk about your background, where you grew up, um, early childhood memories, and how you got into skiing, and then where your career has taken you. Yeah. Ooh. It's crazy to me how we have moments in our lives where they are actually kind of a curve in the road, right? And next thing you know, you're down this path, and you're like, oh my God, where were all those turns that happened? to put me where I am now. Um, I grew up as a kid in Switzerland. My parents were over there because my dad was a president of an American college in Lugano. And so we had part of our school program was to take all the kids into the mountains. And there was a gondola close by. And every Wednesday we would go skiing. And I'll never forget getting my first pair of skis at the grocery store. And they were these little kind of plastic skis that you would strap on your feet. And I, you know, I do actually have a memory of that, which is crazy. And that was kind of the starting point of what would become a life in the mountains, um, of which I'm so grateful for. Uh, So we moved back to the States, um, to New England in, in the 80s. And skiing still was a part of my life, but we were living in Massachusetts at the time. There's not a lot of mountains, but my parents would do their very best to get us up to Vermont to ski. We would go to Stowe, um, Mount Mansfield. And, you know, I think that's where the hook really was set, so to speak. Um, You know, so looking forward to those few weekends. And, you know, it was tough because you're a kid that gets to ski maybe four times a year, you know, but I was so passionate about it. And I remember, you know, on those brutally cold days, um, on the East coast where Mount Mansfield actually used to give, um, leave blankets at the bottom of the chairlift, like these poncho wool blankets, <laughs> cause it was so brutally cold on those slow chairlift rides. Um, you know, you learn to like, love it fiercely. Um, because you were tested, you were tested by cold, you were tested by ice, you know, and people always joke that growing up as a skier on the East coast, you really kind of like cut your teeth, so to speak. Um, went to school in Vermont and started ski racing. Amazingly enough, like took me on and it was a super mellow ski program. You know, you drank a lot, you threw up in the starting gate, you tried to put a good run together. It was like, you know, nothing super competitive, just really fun. But it was the first time that I was able to get coached, um, in skiing, you know, up to that point, maybe I had a lesson or two when my parents wanted to go ski by themselves, but never really had any formal coaching or anything like that. Just kind of was one of those kinetic learners where you'd see somebody ski by and you thought they were doing it really well. And you kind of mimicked whatever they were doing, that kind of thing. Um, Fast forward a little bit, and uh, I went to Sunday River my senior year of high school to uh, 
on a senior project. Not sure how we got this going, but a friend of mine's family had a cabin in Maine and they, uh, they let us, three of us, me and two of my guy friends go up there for the month and work volunteer for the ski patrol at Sunday river. And that was amazing. You know, senior in high school, ripping around, you know, uh, and skiing every day. And, I realized when I graduated from high school that I wanted to defer my acceptance to Green Mountain College in Vermont um, because I just didn't know what I wanted to do, you know? And so I deferred and I got a job at Sunday River, 19 years old, greenhorn rookie at Sunday River. And I had a, a really horrible accident that I was first on scene for. And it was a uh, 18 year old kid. I was 19 at the time, you know, those trails are icy. There's a lot of intersections and he was in a collision that sent him off the trail and it ended up as a fatality, but it was the first time that I realized that, you know, you to be available to somebody when they're in a really bad way, um, and to keep your cool and to keep focused and do what you need to do head down, um, hopefully for a good outcome. Um, that was one of those like powerful experiences that kind of, I think solidified the type of work that I've been doing in my life. It was also the first time that I realized that with training, you can kind of go into autopilot, you know, and, you know, fast forward to different times in my career, ski guiding or ski patrolling, you know, when the shit hits the fan and you go into that mode, it's, it's fascinating to kind of watch in yourself, you know? Um, so I finally went to college in Vermont and that ski patrol year was pretty amazing. And I decided to move out West, bigger mountains, more wilderness, you know, nature has always been something in my life that grounded me, um, that kind of nourished me in a way, um, that allowed me to just be myself. It's a place with no judgment. You kind of lose whatever voices in your mind that are holding you back or criticizing yourself. And you're just kind of in a really clear space. So I feel super grateful that at, you know, in my twenties, I realized that my connection to nature and being in that medium was so important to me and so important to my well-being, um, and has really guided a lot of where I am now. Um, so I moved out West for more mountains and wilderness and found my way to Lake Tahoe. And I got a job at Squaw Valley, uh, 94, 95. It was a ridiculously epic season. Um, in March, I've never seen it snow. I mean, I had to abandon my car in the driveway. Mm -hmm. It just got to a point of shoveling. You know, this was years before you could afford to buy a snowblower. And so it was all hand shoveling. And so you put in a long day doing control work, come home, you know, with a shovel. And I just, I lost the fight. So I had to hitchhike to work, um, you know, for avalanche control in the, in the dark, you know, wading through four feet of fresh pow, um, like only the Sierras can serve up, you know, I know we're in a bit of a drought, but man, the good old days 
in the 90s in Tahoe and probably earlier than that, I just wasn't around for that, were unbelievably epic in the, the totals that we would get overnight. Yeah, unbelievable. Unbelievable. Yeah, so started at Squaw. I've been there for almost two decades now, I guess two decades easily uh, as a just a regular uh, lineman patroller. Um, I did avalanche forecast for Squaw for a number of years. Uh, that was a great experience and was really lucky to help start, uh, help Kevin Quinn start a heli outfit in Alaska, Points North Heli, in 1999. And that was an eye-opening season. Um, and I've been really lucky to be able to parlay ski patrolling, avalanche education, and uh, heli-ski guiding up until our present day. Um, worked for Chugach Powder Guides for a number of years, and I'm now with uh, Tordrillo Mountain Lodge. And um, yeah, so it's been a, a good, long, amazing run. And some really awesome ski days. Yeah, I bet. Did you meet Kevin Quinn? Was he ski patrolling with you at Squaw, or how did you meet him? No, Kevin Quinn was living in Tahoe at the time, and uh, he was actually good friends with my ex-husband. And Kevin had asked Tom, Tom Ways, who has done quite a bit of heli guiding in his um, his day, uh, and I, he, he invited both of us to join the team. So I kind of was the safety coordinator, helped uh, create an ops plan, um, train guides, buy all of our medical equipment, and kind of helped on that end to get the company up and running, which mm -hmm. was really an awesome experience. Cool. Who were some of your early mentors at Squaw Valley on the ski patrol? And, and can you recount any formative experiences from the early first couple seasons you were there or anything? Oh, I am so grateful to have so many mentors. Um, and I do want to add, and it's probably just the nature of the business, but most of those formative mentors are men. And so I feel incredibly grateful to have had the support um, and encouragement from, you know, my patrol director, Bob Cushman, was, you know, just a kind, um, thoughtful leader that I learned a lot from and would really take the time to check in with me and, you know, hey, Lel, thanks. You worked really hard today. You know, I realized that I'm very motivated by that kind of leadership. Um, Russ Johnson, who was our avalanche forecaster at Squaw for many years as I was coming up through the ranks, you know, the, the way he took me under his wing and got me involved in helping teach avalanche courses with him. And, you know, ultimately with a lot of days in the mountains with him kind of ushered me into forecasting at Squaw when he chose to retire. Um, yeah, the way he approached the mountains um, with humor, um, but great humility was was huge for me. Um, Dave Hamry, my current boss, I um, working and forecasting for the railroad here in Truckee, and that's been a really cool. Maybe we can talk about that down the road, but that's been a really cool experience and very different 
forecasting than, than what I'm previously used to. But Dave Hamry has offered me so many incredible opportunities. Um, and he has been such a sounding board for me over the years, you know, in this line of business, tragedy happens. You lose a lot of friends and, um, Dave's been amazing in supporting me through those experiences. Mm-hmm. You know, I have peers that have been great mentors to me. Um, Mike Overcast, who is uh, was kind of the owner-operator of Tordillo Mountain Lodge and is still very, very involved day-to-day. Um, you know, Mike's a contemporary of mine, but, you know, he'd been guiding probably three or four years longer than I had when I first started working with him um, at Chugach Powder Guides, you know, years ago, I think that was 2000, 2001. So Mike and I have been friends for a long, long time. And, uh, his sense and style of leadership, uh, he, he leads from the front. And I know that you probably, I know Joe Royer, who you've worked with is also has been a mentor over the years, but you know, there's some men that lead from the front that are not afraid to ask you to do anything because they would probably do it themselves. Um, so a huge amount of respect about how he moves through the mountains and his attention to safety and protocol, um, have taught me a lot over the years and I've gotten my ass chewed out by Mike. (laughs) Um, and I've learned a lot from him. Um, he's, he can be a tough adversary, but he's a wonderful boss, and he's been a huge mentor to me. Frank Coffey was uh, our operations manager at Chugach Powder Guys when I first started working there. And Frank would give me ISSW papers to read. He would give me articles. Uh, we would debrief a day in the mountains. And he really took the time you know, it was myself and my friend Pat Shanley were kind of the greenhorns at that outfit, you know, in 2000. And he, re- you know, they're long guiding days. And he would actually take time at the end of the day to kind of answer questions and debrief and get into the nitty gritty about how things worked that day and taught me a lot about operational practices and, you know, efficiency in the mountains and, keeping an eye on your crew. He taught me a lot about pods. There's this whole idea in heli guiding that you you're responsible for your pod. I mean, you're ultimately responsible for every ship in the field that is in your operation, but you know, how do you watch out for your teammates? So Lel, you, you mentioned a little bit about forecasting for the railroad here and around Truckee. Um, I don't, I, I didn't know too much about that that operation. And so maybe you could talk a little bit about how you came into that forecasting gig. Yeah. As I mentioned, um, Dave Hamry has been a huge mentor and he's offered a lot of amazing opportunities to me over the years. And, uh, about three years ago, he came to me and said, Hey, I've been talking to the railroad. They've had a couple close calls and near misses. And, you know, up until that time, the Union Pacific Railroad had been really lucky to operate through the Sierras with little incident. My boss, who I report to at the railroad, Mike Upton, great guy, hilarious guy, but he really realized, wow, we've been dodging a bullet. And 
it was fine maybe in the 80s and 90s and but we need to make a change and it, you know i think we've seen that in our industry the whole idea of safety um and we're a little less cowboy all around than we were years ago and i think he realized wow I really need to do something. So he enlisted Dave um, to come in and write up a report for him and really kind of give him an idea of what a forecasting program would look like. And so um, Dave came to me and said, you know, I want you to meet Mike. I want you to talk to him. And if if there's a good rapport there, um, you know, let's get this program rolling. And um, Dave's been kind of the architect and, and um, manager of lots of different avalanche hazard management programs for other railroads and industry, right? For years. Dave Hamry and Associates does a ton of work for ski industry, for railroad. You know, Dave ran the Alaska Railroad Avalanche Program for years and years. And so he has a breadth of experience. So for me to be able to watch Dave operate and, you know, really have him bring me along and, um, you know, kind of groom me into that position and really help me build that program has been such an amazing learning experience for me. Really honored to have been able to have been offered that position. It's definitely, you know, had its challenges. Um, you know, there's a lot of setup work. We set up um, four weather stations in a matter of, you know, a few months. Um, and, you know, obviously had to deal with permitting and the ATF and the county for getting, um, you know, our explosives license um, to be able to do mitigation work. So rather than just forecasting work and warnings, um, you know, and having much better data and information at access to the railroad, um, that's been a cool process, but to actually, you know, this season was the first year that we were able to actually go out and do mitigation work. Mm. Um, and it's, you know, your, that railroad needs to move. And so there are pressures. I mean, the millions of dollars that go through Truckee and go through that avalanche terrain in a given day, the millions of dollars, you know, if we have an issue, we have a train hit by an avalanche, we have a derailment due to snow, that is a huge loss of revenue for the Union Pacific. So there's a lot of stress involved. The thing that's different that I am grateful for is you're potentially knocking a train off the rails. Um, You're not killing a mighty mite at the ski resort. Mm -hmm. You're not having a small child caught in a slough. You know what I mean? The, it's a very different um, kind of forecasting that you're doing. And you walk into it with a different mindset? Yes, very different mindset. And, you know, the great thing about it is I bring the information to Mike Upton. You know, I report directly to him. And he weighs out the whole big picture. And he says, we can't hold up the train two hours, so we're going to run it. (laughs) I think we all take on as forecasters really take on a lot on our shoulders. Um, And I've certainly had experiences where even as a patroller, I had somebody caught in a post-control release on my route and it crushed me. 
it crushed me for days, you know, and I, uh, it happens, you know, it happens in ski resorts. You cannot hit every nook and cranny and you can have a lot of shots that go off and don't actually pull that particular small pocket. And yeah, we're protecting for the big, you know, class threes. And this was one, you know, this is a, a small slide, a small pocket that came out, but he was partially buried. He lost his skis. You know, to me, that was, what did I miss? What did I do wrong? And it's on me. It's, it's my fault, <laughs> you know? And so as forecasters and guides and ski patrollers, that is something that's, that we need to reckon with, you know? Um, I, my first year guiding at points North, I had a client caught in an avalanche and it was, it was big and it was scary and it was a very traumatic experience for me. And I was really lucky that he ended up on the surface. Um, but it was my first time, at least heli guiding where I realized truly the magnitude of the job that I had in terms of keeping people safe in the mountains. And it was a very early kick in the ass, you know, punch in the teeth of like, do you want this? Do you actually want this? Yeah, you ski pow and you get to fly around in a helicopter and, you know, you get to show people the best day of their lives. And there's that whole aspect that as a young guide is like forefront in your mind or I've wanted to pick off that line for, you know, two weeks now. And, you know, it's all very self-focused. Um, but the other side of all of that is you need to bring people safely home at the end of a day, you mm -hmm. know, and what if you don't, and do you have the metal and do you have the balls to deal with that? Mm -hmm. You know, not, do you have the balls to go ski cut that, you know, 2000 foot cool bar or whatever, but do you have the balls to deal with somebody getting hurt under your watch? You know? So over the years, if you're in this game long enough, you're going to lose friends, right? That's part of the deal. Um, and you know, how we all deal with that is an individual thing. Um, for me, it was a really good opportunity to ask myself, how important is what I'm doing? How much does it fill my heart and my soul? How much does it make me feel alive? And, you know, the mountains and guiding and, and snow science and that world has given me so much joy. Um, but there might be a time when, you know, the loss or the you know, the risk causes you to say, Hey, I think I'm going to tap out. And there's no shame in that. There's no shame in that at all. And, you know, when I talk with younger ski patrollers, um, you know, that are, that are coming up and they're dealing with those kind of things in the workplace, you know, I'm like, well, there's absolutely no shame in tapping out. There's no shame in pushing back from the table. And, uh, you know, I've had accidents, you know, for instance, that, uh, client going for a ride my first year guiding at points North, I did not want to get back out in the mountains. 
And fortunately, a storm came in as they do in in the Chugach. And I think we are down 10 days in a row. But it really gave me time in my own head to debrief that incident and build up the strength to climb back in the saddle again. But I didn't want to go back into the mountains at all. You know, my friend Joe passed away at Squaw Valley in an explosives accident. And it was scary. It rocked our crew. Um, A lot of people did not want to go out and do mitigation work, but I needed to. It was one of those times where I was like, I need to get out there. I want to do this right now. I want to get on the bike and I need to keep soldiering forward. So, you know, I'm the same girl, but in those two very different incidents, you know, one needed to take some time and one needed to soldier through and power on. And um, I think we as human beings need to listen to ourselves um, and give ourselves, you know, obviously the permission to do that. And so I just encourage younger patrollers when we're dealing with some pretty gnarly stuff in the workplace, like there is no shame in, in taking a break. There's mm-hmm. no shame in tapping out. There's no shame in taking a season off or, you know, um, that you just need to feel into that in your own being. And what what do you need right now to move through this? It's a big freaking deal what we do. Um, and when we lose people in the mountains and we are, you know, you know, when we're in high avalanche hazard, you you're on pins and needles, you're on edge, you're in a state of fight or flight, you know, you're in that mode. And I, I know you know, you're shaking your head, you know, those dicey days when you're heli ski guiding in the rubies or, you know, and you got a really scary snowpack, you know, you're, you cannot let your guard down until you crawl into bed at night, you know, mm-hmm. um, that weighs on you year after year after year, you know? Um, and I think we're just starting to really understand it. We're starting to give it merit. Um, and we're starting to be able to support people in those workplace situations where we need it. You know, I was so impressed with, I'm going to call it Squaw Valley. I can't drop that just yet, but so impressed with all the support that we got as a patrol after our friend Joe passed in that explosives accident. We had access to, you know, one-on-one sessions with a therapist. We met, you know, on a number of amount of days uh, as a crew. We broke up into smaller groups so that we could have a small peer support network. And that went on for weeks and weeks and weeks. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, we had access to that support, you know, long after the event. I think that's huge. That's this, that's the responsible thing to do in taking care of your employees. Right. And everybody deals with it a little bit differently, right? Like even you mentioned, you know, two different events, you, you know, you dealt with them a little bit differently. Some people need to get back on the horse, right. And get back out there and, and maybe the reflection comes a little bit later, but it seems like the community is doing a bit better job of not just like rubbing dirt in the wound and taking a shot of whiskey and like going back to work. Right. Yeah. And I guess this is cause it just popped into my mind. Mm-hmm. I'm going to kind of make a little turn in the road here, but 
I really feel in watching our patrol go through, you know, my friend Andrew Enton was taken out in a class four avalanche, huge avalanche, and was killed a number of years ago. Watching us as a crew go through that incident and grieving, I am an advocate for having more women in the workplace, mm-hmm. you know, for a number of reasons. Um, you know, I think it's really important to have a diverse group of individuals in the workplace, um, different skill sets. But I also felt like the women on our patrol really gave left an opening for our brothers, our patrol brothers. Maybe we set a little bit of an example or created a space for people to actually really feel it, you know, mm-hmm. and there were hugs. Yeah. There's plenty of whiskey drinking, plenty, probably just to crack open the jar a little bit, but sure. you know, the hugs and the one-on-one talks on the chairlift and the really like heart to heart, uh, tell me how you're doing. How do you feel? You know, instead of like, yeah, let's go shop the West face for Esky, you know, And there's that, and that's super important too, but I guess I felt like having a good, strong, I think we had probably 10 women on that patrol, which is a very small percentage, but I think it really helped helped the collective crew through that process. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I'm super excited to see more women in the field, you know, in the guiding world and in the... Um, ski patrol world and you know I know last year was maybe the first year in years and years and years that Squaw Valley had a deficit of women and those boys were bummed you know and that it felt good to hear that you know it felt good to hear that we were missed Mm -hmm. that it wasn't quite the same you know and so it was uh it was it was nice and it's it's I think there's some there's a shift being made in that regard as well in the industry that I'm really excited to see. What can the community do more of to invite women into the industry? Like what, what do we need to do to be better? Well, I think mentorship is mm-hmm. huge, you know, and I know there's been a big push in the female mentorship program. You know, um, I know the, the AAA has done a really great job. The A3 has done a great job in, mentorship programs and I like to do it you know just on a one-on-one basis it's just you know um, something I'm passionate about and making connections with like-minded people or like-minded women um, to encourage that you know the encouragement to like why why can't you you absolutely can do and here's the number and I'll call my you know director and you know I'll make a phone call for you know Providing openings, providing mm-hmm. encouragement, I think is the biggest one, you know, and that can obviously come from all the, you know, as I said, all of my mentors were our men, you know, and that's just given the field and given the, the human beings that work in that field, you know, um, I'm obviously Janet Callum and uh, was a huge mentor to me when I was on the board and um, Lynn Wolf. You know, to, to watch those women who were my heroes and have their acceptance and have their support was like, blew my mind. You know, it was uh, really nice to be able to look around that boardroom and be like, oh, 
yay, there's three of us, you know, um, just that sisterhood is, is really important, you know? Mm -hmm. So I think encouraging, there's plenty of really capable, um, individuals out there. I just need the encouragement and need to be brought into the fold kind Mm -hmm. of thing. Right. Well, you were talking a bit about your work as a forecaster for the railroad. Um, let's kind of head back to, to that topic a little bit. What does a typical day of forecasting for the railroad look like? You know, how many paths are threatening the that section of railroad that you're forecasting for? And then what tools are in your toolbox to deal with it? Yeah. Um, so I'm avalanche forecasting with a Trekkie Railroad. Um I have a partner, Marco Jean, who used to be the executive director of the Sierra Avalanche Center. He's, uh, he and I are working together on it, which is just, I think when you're running or involved in an avalanche program, peer review and conversation and being able to run through the avalanche problem with another brain is so critical in making sound decisions, not being kind of in the glass jar, so to speak. Um, so Mark, Mark and I will get up. Usually one of us is on. And so it's a get up at three in the morning, take a look at our weather stations, start compiling a data sheet, uh, for all the directors and the snow crews of the railroad, uh, getting at that out, um, you know, by four thirty, four o'clock in the morning, we put out a railroad avalanche danger scale for them, um, which puts out recommendations for personnel and also recommendations for avalanche paths and the terrain that, you know, they can travel through. Um, and so four o'clock that goes out, uh, we have to coordinate with the snow removal crews and, They have the flangers and spreaders that are part of snow control that comes out of Truckee and runs up and over the summit and down towards Immigrant Gap. So our forecasting area is between Truckee and Immigrant Gap. That's um, our areas of main concern. Predominantly bank slides, but we do have three large slide sites Um, One is at an area we call Big Bend, and then one is at Cisco. Um, There's a big slide path that has traditionally derailed trains in the past there and given them most of their problems. And then when we have those cold events where we get snow down low, Immigrant Gap can be a very high-risk, low-probability area for us. Um, So we need to coordinate doing avalanche control work before the spreaders get to us. So, you know, as we know, as ski patrollers, there's always a ton of pressure from the resort to open that terrain. You've got, you know, skiers chomping at the bit in the KT lift line. You know, they've been there for four hours. It's a different chomping at the bit, you know, instead of your 200 friends that happen to be in the lift line, you know, you're, you're dealing with, you know, commerce money and these huge spreaders and flangers kind of breathing down your back. So we have at our disposal, uh, an avalancher, uh, at big bend, we have an avalanche pipe and we have hand charges, case charges. So we're mostly snowcat access at this point. 
so we're getting to those locations either by ski touring or snowcat. So we have to coordinate with that crew, you know, and the railroad moves at a different speed. Um, and you have to be very patient with that. Um, and so there's that coordination that happens. Um, but the pressure's on and we need to hustle and, and hit as many of our slide paths as we can as, as two individuals with limited travel, uh, options and, uh, and try and bring down, you know, the bigger hazards. Um, we're not worried about the class ones and class twos. We're worried about those class three, class four events. So, you know, as with Squaw Valley, when I was patrolling there, we worry so much about those tweener storms, you know, and as a forecaster, it's so frustrating. Do I bring, do I push the button and bring the whole crew in and we get out there and we're ski cutting and it's, there's nothing happening and you've kind of over forecasted or, you know, there's not so much of a concern for those kind of days on the railroad, which is refreshing mm-hmm. that you're not agonizing over your, you know, 80 mile an hour winds and you're, you know, three inches of pre, you know, it's, it's different. It's very different. Um, you're worried about those big, big events that would cripple the railroad. So mm-hmm. that's a typical day, um, being out there, training the crews, checking in with the crews that have been out there, that kind of thing. And, you know, moving explosives around, you know, we, we don't have a big explosives program, unlike some of the big ski resorts that we've worked for. Um, but we do have to move a bunch of product around because our, our storage is much less than what we'd have at the ski resort. So, you know, I'm constantly calling for more product to come up from, from Sacramento, but, uh, yeah. That's a, that's a typical day. Do you get good feedback from the railroad workers? Like you, you mentioned kind of training them up. Are you getting some good information from them to, to inform your forecast? Uh, yes and no. Mm-hmm. We're working on it. Um, you know, there's been a big push to do a lot of education with the crews. And I think they actually really appreciate it. And they really have a lot of fun with it. I think mostly because we're so enthusiastic about teaching it and making sure that these guys realize this is you keeping each other safe. This is you being a good teammate out there. This is important for you to know. And yeah, the instances of this happening are very low, but you know, I want you to be able to go on an auto pilot, you know, should somebody get caught in a slide or a train get hit. And you know, there could be conductors that are outside checking equipment when the slide comes down, that kind of thing. I mean, our operational protocols, you know, definitely keep that in mind. And, and our, you know, obviously we have things in play where people would not be doing that, um, as they have traditionally in the past. Um, I think the crew overall is a lot more aware of the potential hazard, which is huge, but, um, doing continuing education stuff over the course of the season so that they actually have, uh, have a knowledge base to communicate what they saw, you know, instead of, you know, some of the language that I hear about snow rolling down the mountain or, you know, what did you, what did you mean by that exactly? (laughs) Was that a pinwheel? Was that an av, what, you know, was it a slough? So getting those guys to actually understand, uh, the vocabulary to be able to, to share their observations. 
I've been lucky enough to be able to work with some of the seasoned veterans on the rail system. And because I know they're priceless, you know, when I sit in a truck on the high railer or, you know, they're taking us out to a weather station to work on something, I am grilling them for info. Like, what have you seen? What about this spot? What about this pocket? You know, how many times have you seen this roll out and how big has it been? And, you know, trying to get that historical knowledge from the few old timers that are still there, mm-hmm. you know, and I think they really appreciate being honored for their time and their history with the railroad and and what they've seen, you know, I'm able to come across, you know, the Steve bright eyes of the railroad. Um, he's, he's one of our awesome crew members in Truckee, but like I'm plugging him for all the info that I can get. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Nice. That seems like a, a, a cool new venture for you. And, and, um, but you're still going up to Alaska to do some heli ski guiding in the springtime. Is that right? Yeah. Dave and I had a long conversation and, uh, you know, I think having done this for a long time, you know, there is that time when you ask yourself, it's a numbers game. We all, I think at a certain point recognize that no matter how safe or humble or, uh, focused or thoughtful we are traveling in the mountains how much we follow protocol, things are going to happen. And like, I I think we all recognize that, but it starts weighing on you. I think, you know, there was a time when every time I bought my plane ticket to Alaska, I recognized the decision I was making, you know, the simple act of like hitting the pay button was another roll of the dice potentially, you know? Um, and it doesn't sit on me. It doesn't, but it's, it's, it's ever present in the back of my mind that it is a numbers game. Um, and so Dave and I had a conversation and, you know, when he offered this job up to me on the railroad, he said, you know, it was like a conscious, like, how can we as avalanche professionals step out of the firing line just a little bit, you know, I still love those 100 mile an hour ridge walks doing avalanche control with your partner in zero viz, like every like poor, every like sensory thing in your body is like fired, right? You're just like, that is living, crawling around in 100 mile an hour winds. You know, it's like the most exciting thing you could do. You, you feel like you're alive. I still love that. But how do we, you know, I'm 51 years old, you know, I feel strong, I feel fit, I can still hang. Um, But how do you step out of the firing line just a little bit, you know, and forecasting for the railroad is a really great way for me to do that. Mm -hmm. Um, But it's that, it's that pull of what feeds you, you know, and spending time in the mountains ski guiding in the alaska range in the tordrillos fires me up um flying into a valley that you've never been to before 20 something years i'm not even going to do the math on how many years i've been guiding but like to still be seeing new stuff uh to still be flying into new terrain is such an 
awesome thing. And I don't know that I can fully derail from that, you know? So it's, it's a balance right now for me, it's a balance. Um, you know, really listening to myself, my intuition, um, you know, it was a particularly tough season last year in the heli guiding world in Alaska and it shook me and I had to take a bunch of time to sit with it. And I gave myself a lot of space this spring and this summer to just mourn and grieve and let the dust settle inside my being. If that makes any sense, sure. just listen to myself and be gentle with myself, not push myself too hard, not make decisions about whether I was going back, but just to give myself some space. Um, and, you know, I think I am going to go back to Alaska this year. You know, it's probably not going to be a, a long season up there for me, but again, I love what I do. I love spending time in the mountains in that medium. It's incredible. And to share that experience with your clients, to have clients, you know, come to you midday or end of the day that that was the best day of their life. And they've like truly honestly mean it with all of their heart and soul is like, it sometimes brings tears to my eyes. Like, holy, wow. Wow. That's amazing. I'm touched. I'm touched that I got to spend that day with you. You know, it's like an honor. We're so fortunate to be able to have those experiences, right? So fortunate. So let's talk a little bit about heli guiding and some things that you've learned over the years. Um, one question I have for you is, is uh, I guess I tend to make better decisions when I can slow the decision-making process mm. down. And sometimes I feel like in the heli world, things are moving pretty fast. Right. So I guess my first question would be, in what ways are you able to slow the tempo down to be able to be comfortable with your decision making? Yeah, that's a great question. And the the amazing Dave Hahn, the living legend, Dave Hahn, was so funny. He started guiding uh, in the Tordrillos with us about three or four years ago. <laughs> you know, Dave Hahn, Everest legend. You know, but the guiding tempo when you're mountain climbing is is a very different tempo than jumping in an A-star and jumping valley to valley, you know, aspect to aspect in a matter of, of you know, an hour. And he said, God, well, this heli guiding thing is so fast. I, I just, I don't know how my brain can keep up with this. <laughs> it was like the funniest thing ever. I laughed so hard. Um He's, he's just such a humble dude, you know, like humble legend, you know, but, uh, it is a fast tempo, you know, the things that we do operationally, and I'm sure it's the same for you to slow it down is, you know, you get all the groups in the field and then it's time to just stop, look, listen, tune in. And a lot of times we'll do that by jumping a group, two groups together to dig a snow pit. Mm -hmm. So we're pumping the brakes. We're getting observations. Helicopter goes and lands on the valley floor. We don't have $100 bills flying out of the helicopter anymore. We just shut the ship down and we dig a pit. And you and your other guide, whoever you're working with, you know, maybe you've got four people in that pod, you know, two guides are digging, south facing, you know, 
2000 feet, you know, you guys are digging north aspect, you know, different elevation, but you're, you're trying to get as many observations as you can. Um, pump the brakes, call in observations on the radio, have a discussion, proceed. Um, another way I like to pump the brakes in the field is to stop have a guide land at the same location that I am, take some group photos while we're taking group photos, you know, you're having a face-to-face because as you know, radio comms, it's like texting. Mm -hmm. You never really get a full feel of of what's going on by texting. Mm -hmm. Same with radio calls. You just need to take your goggles, put them up, look at your partner in the eye and talk about what you're seeing or how you're feeling or, you know, whether you're going to make that move into a different drainage or, you know, and I I think it's that one-on-one stopping and talking that's huge. You know, we talk about that in avalanche education, you know, any drink break or food stop or layer change is an opportunity to connect in group decision-making, you know? So those are ways, you know, and obviously lunch in the field, you know, we'll usually have a, a guide meeting midday as to what the plan is, what we are feeling good about, what we're not, whether we're going to bump up terrain options or, you know, keep it as discussed in the morning meeting. Or um, So I think slowing it down, um, you know, and obviously there's those days, those carefree days in guiding, which is so far and few between where, you know, you're kind of cruising and getting a great run count and, you know, things are easy peasy and you're communicating through the pilot and stuff like that. But, um, yeah, on those dicey days, pumping the brakes by, you know, doing those kind of things in the field operationally, I think are ways to like, you know? Right. Yeah. Do you all operate off of a run list at TML or, or, um, how do you open and close terrain? Uh, we do. It's it's very tricky for us and difficult because our tenure is so large, mm-hmm. because our runs are fairly extensive, um, you know, and I know it's the same for a lot of those Canadian operators and they do a really great job at it. You know, we're going through some growing pains in that. We have a lot of runs that are red listed. You know, runs that are absolutely off the menu um, for the day. Um, But we struggle with marking, like having time in the guide meeting to go through every single zone of the 10 zones that we have and every single run in all of those zones. So it's not really realistic. It's very, very tricky for us. Yeah. Yeah very tricky for us. You know, I feel so fortunate to be guiding for an outfit that has such seasoned guides, you know, like Wes Wiley is one of my favorite people to be in the mountains with, you know, has been guiding for 30 years, you know, um, Hugh Bernard is our operations manager. You know, Hugh runs an outfit in New Zealand and is, an incredible man to be in the mountains with, you know, anyway, so we're very, I'm very lucky to be working with a crew where, you know, it's like having an all-star football team. You just kind of know where your players are going to be. You know, the plays as they evolve, you almost don't need to talk about them. Mm. Um, 
yeah, all of that's, I feel really lucky, fortunate with. Sure. What advice would you offer yourself 20 years ago? Um, actually, you know what? <laughs> I would offer the same advice that Joe Royer offered me. I'll never forget uh, this little bit of advice that he, uh, it's a, it was a tidbit. And he invited me out to guide training at the Rubies. I think this was 1999. Um, and it was a really sweet offer of his to, to kind of like have myself involved. Um, and he brought up the point that you're not out there skiing for yourself when you're guiding. And I think I nodded and recognized it and took it as a kernel, you know, a nugget of wisdom, but I don't think I really fully understood, uh, understood it to the depth that I understand it today. Um, it's not about you. I think a lifetime in the mountains has been incredibly humbling for me in a beautiful way. Um, you know, and I know we all come into this life with a certain amount of ego. It keeps us alive. Um, it serves its purpose, but living and working in the mountains, it's never about us or our agenda or what we want or what the clients want or what the ski resort management wants. It's, it's what you're presented with. So as a snow worker, you need to work your best Buddhist to be fully present in the moment. And like, you know, when I think about the things that I've learned from mother nature, um, the things that I've learned from the mountains and yes, of course, coworkers and mentors, but just being in the mountains and being blessed with that. One of the bigger things is, you know, keeping the ego in check. One of the things is like being completely present in the moment and taking in the beauty and the gift that we're given every day when we're allowed to be in the mountains, doing what we love, um, really letting that seep into you. And I don't know if, you know, that's what I would be telling my, you know, rookie self, um, but to slow down and be in the moment and learn um or be open to what mother nature's teaching you, you know, mm -hmm. open your eyes and listen and feel into it, you know? Um, cause we do get so caught up in our own selves, in our own ego, in our own heads so much of the time. And so when we can derail from that and just be truly immersed in our craft or what we're doing, it's a gift. It's a gift. You know? Sure. Sometimes easier said than done. A lot of distractions out there. Always, eh? <laughs> always. And I know Scotty Savage did like a lot of work with this and I found it to be so helpful. And I actually, Scotty was kind enough to share his presentation with me when I did a, uh, shortly after Andrew passed, you know, how can we keep our distractions in check when we're doing really dangerous work? Um, and he was really kind to share that. But, you know, it was always so fascinating to me about, like, how do I keep my brain engaged fully, you know, when we're at those pinnacle, like, high probability, scary times, you know? What works well for you? Constantly keeping that in the back of my mind. Yeah. Come back. Come back. Here you are. 
focus, let that go, let that go, you know? And I think mindfulness meditation is like the perfect practice for that. I know that sounds ridiculous, but no, how doesn't. do we keep how do we keep the monkey monkey mind in check when we're we have 20 pounds of explosives on our back, right. you know? And a partner who is in their second season, you know, and it's blowing 80 miles an hour. And yeah, and you've been doing it for the last week and everybody's tired, exhausted, right. you know, and you've gotten a fight with your whoever, you know? Yeah. So. Well, I'm looking out for your teammates too. When you see other people that are, that are not able to stay present in the moment. And I mean, happens to everybody, right? But yeah. looking out for one another. Yeah. That's a huge one. Yeah. Huge one. Your team, you know, and I think, I think the other thing that I try when I'm out in the field, uh, mostly this is ski patrolling. Um, because as I said, I work with a very seasoned guide staff. So these aren't, these aren't things that I, I need to point out or share with, with those guys, but, um, you're a team in the mountains, you're responsible for everybody around you. So, for example, when I'm teaching a new person a route, you know, we'll stop at a given point. I'm like, okay, where's the, where's the rock garden team right now? Where do you think the guys are on the funnel? Have you been listening to their shots going off? Did you hear their radio calls? Where are they? Now, where are you to be able to back them up if there's a slide in the, you know, second rock garden pocket or whatever? So always keeping in mind where your teammates are around you. You know, and I do that a lot in the helicopter. You know, you might stack up on a ridge and pretend you're taking photos and telling story, but that's not really the reason why you're stacked up on this ridge not dropping in. It's because you've got eyes on, you know, Steve Hall while he's ski cutting and opening a run, you know, and he can see me. I don't have to say it on the radio, but he knows I have eyes on and I know there's no way I'm going to be distracted and drop off the ridge until I know he's in a good spot and his second or third client is safely at him or, you know, mm -hmm. so you're always out there kind of playing a mental chess game. And I feel like we need to do that a lot on avalanche control, mm -hmm. you know, and if you have to hold up in your position for 10, 15 minutes on certain days, that's what you do so that you know you're above that team that's making a really dicey move you know, in a fairly committed zone. So, you know, as a ski patroller to know all the routes, to know when you're most exposed, to know how you can back up your buddies when they're most exposed, I think is just that mental chess game that we need to start tuning into. So with rookie patrollers, I'm trying to kind of framework that. So I guess that would be another bit of advice to my younger self. So how do you back your bros? Right. And sisters. And have all that situational awareness. Yeah. And individual awareness of where your head's at. Exactly. Right. Exactly. Yeah. You know, there have been times where there's been scary things in the mountains and I, I go out in the field and I'm like, hey, eyes on me today. Eyes on me today. You know, I'm feeling kind of torn up right now. Mm -hmm. Eyes on, you know, little smile, but, you know, serious look in the eye, like, you know, and I'll also oftentimes tell my pilot that I remember getting, getting into the helicopter this spring and I was like, you know, mm -hmm. Hey, Sam, Sam, eyes on me. You know, I got a lot on my brain right now. So eyes on, make sure I don't do something stupid out there, you know? Yeah. So we keep an eye on each other and yeah, 
recognizing your own weaknesses is, a, is an important one. Mm-hmm. Sure. Well, you've done a lot in avalanche education as well, and, and you haven't really, we haven't spoken about that, but mm-hmm. what are, what are the safe as clinics? Oh, dude, they're my favorite. <laughs> so, uh, our safe as clinics, I think we're gosh on our like eighth or ninth year time flies, man. Um, are all women's, well, they're not all women's anymore, but um, they started out as an intro to avalanche education. We kind of wanted to be the gateway drug to avalanche education. And I, number one, love the all-female vibe. It's just, it's different, Mm -hmm. you know, and there's so much uh, bro bra vibe in the ski and mountain world for the most part. And so it was like super refreshing just to have like a little tiny sector, uh, for all women stuff, you know, and it was fun. And we got to like tell dirty jokes and like not worry about offending anybody. And it was, uh, it's a really great format to introduce women to the backcountry. It's evolved. We have co-ed clinics now. Um, and what's awesome is, you know, you look around at these co-ed clinics and it's dads and their daughters, it's moms and their sons, male and female ski partners, but it's, it's cool to see, you know, uh, to see a different sector. You know, when I teach airy courses, you go in, there's like two, two women, you know, 20 something guys. It's a lot of male ski Cruise, you know what I mean? I mean, yeah. you get it. You've, yeah. you've taught them before, you uh-huh. see it. Um, so it's just a little different in that regard. Um, Ingrid and uh, Ingrid Backstrom and Elise Sogstad and Michelle Parker and Jackie Peso. Um, and then we get a host of amazing other ladies that roll in um, Robin Van Gin, Hannah Beeman. We get kind of our our knuckle dragon sisters, you know, um, to come in. And, uh, we have over the years, we've had some incredible, um, other guest instructors. Cody, uh, is one of our instructors as well. And I gotta say, you know, having watched Cody Townsend throughout his career, I sit and listen to him talk about safety in the mountains and I am so it's pride. Like being proud of him isn't quite the right word, but I just, I smile. Like I just sit there and smile cause I, I've been able to watch his journey and watch him really step up his game in the mountains and see that whole process of humility unfolding and then see him sharing his experiences with other people. Um, that's been super, super fun for me to watch. Um, and you know, he's got some big objectives that he's been working on over the years and, you know, he keeps learning and learning and learning. It's really awesome. But, um, we do those early season. I really want to do a safe as phase two in Alaska. Mm. Um, there might be that on the docket sometime soon. Um, but, uh, it's, always a joy to get the ladies together early season. And for me, it's an awesome way for me to get dialed back in for, to, you know, you've been dirt biking all summer and, you know, been on the rivers and, you know, it hasn't really started to hammer yet, but you just, you need to get your brain re-engaged for winter and tune, tune those avalanche eyeballs in and to be able to talk about it and teach it helps me kind of get myself grounded into winter mode, which is cool. Sure. Where can people find out a little bit more about that? Um, safe as on Instagram. 
um, and Facebook. Uh, we also have a website. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm sure you could do a quick search and find that pretty quickly. I know we're working on our uh, schedule now. Um, I don't know that dates have been set, um, but you know, there's going to be for sure some Squaw Valley and some Utah and some Colorado again this year. So, and Pacific Northwest. So, um, stay tuned. It's growing. Yeah, it's growing. I know they sell out so quickly. So if you're interested in doing one, get your shit together, get signed up ASAP. (laughs) Nice. Um, well, Lel, thanks so much for taking the time to sit down with me today and share some of your experiences from, uh, a long career and, and varied career within the industry. Um, I really appreciated hearing some stories. Thank you, Caleb. I feel really, really blessed to have this life. And thanks so much for giving me the opportunity to talk about it. Yeah, you bet. <laughs> okay. We'll see you out there. High fives. <laughs> thanks for listening, everybody. Hope you enjoyed that one. Music on today's episode was created by Ketza. You can find more of their tracks at ketza.uk. The artwork for the show was created by Mike T. You demand T. Check out more of Mike T's creations and contact him for any of your logo needs at MikeT.com. M-I-K-E-T-E-A.com. Take a moment to subscribe, rate, and review the podcast on whatever platform you're listening to it on. We greatly appreciate that. And don't forget to tell a friend. You can follow us on the socials. We are at the Avalanche Hour Podcast on Facebook and Instagram. Please send us any feedback you have to the Avalanche Hour Podcast at gmail.com. Don't forget to tune in next week on November 25th, the third Thursday. We've got episode 6.6 coming with your host, Dominic Baker. And he's titling this episode, Avalanche Mamas, Life and Motherhood in the Avalanche Industry. He has a bit of a a roundtable discussion with several folks that that weigh in on their thoughts of of their experience being a mother and working in the avalanche industry. So not to be missed. Until next time, stay tuned, stay safe, and keep having fun out there. Cheers, everybody.